My name is Stacy Sargent Lawton, and I'm a hospital chaplain. Each week on this podcast, a few fellow chaplains will join me to discuss an episode or two of the great TV hospital drama, ER, from our unique perspectives as spiritual caregivers. This is ER Chaplains Watching ER. Father, please protect my soul. Hi, and welcome to episode nine of ER Chaplains Watching ER. I'm your host, Stacey Sargent Lawton, and with me tonight, I have one other wonderful chaplain, Carrie Walker Nettles. Hi there. So, um, it's been a really eventful summer, so we've not <laughs> recorded as often as normal. So, sorry, listeners, for the long unintended hiatus, but between people being at conferences and on vacations and our kids being out of school, just getting busy with that. Um, It's been really hard for everybody to get together. Um, So Carrie and I managed to do it tonight, but all the other um, chaplains were too busy. Um, I also want to mention it's been a really eventful summer for George Clooney, too. Um, Last (laughs) month, he got the AFI um, American Film Institute Lifetime Achievement Award, and that was a really big deal. And there were a lot of great interviews around that, including one where he talked about ER um, and how important that was in his career. So I think I already tweeted that, um, but I will put a link to it in the show notes as well. And then his wife, Amal, gave a really sweet speech about um, life with him and the twins and everything, which was a nice little window into their life that we don't get often because they're pretty private about that. Um, Mm. And then just this month, George Clooney was in a really bad accident. He was riding a scooter in Italy um, on heading to the set of a new series he's doing called Catch-22 and was hit by a car on his scooter. Um, Really terrifying. It was caught on security camera, and you can see in the video him just flying off this scooter. But he is okay and is back on set now. And listeners, I will tell you why. He was wearing his helmet. And that makes the difference mm-hmm. always when we see people come in in the ER after a motorcycle always. or scooter crashes, always, whether they're wearing a helmet makes the difference between them walking out of there and them having a life altering head injury. So good for Absolutely. George Clooney and always wear your helmet. Always. That's my little PSA. And we're so glad that George is okay. Um, so tonight, our first episode that we're going to be discussing is called Make of Two Hearts, and Carrie has our bullet recap. Okay, so Make of Two Hearts is set on Valentine's Day, and again, we are decorating the ER with Valentine's um, decorations and hearts and whatnot. Um, some of the main storylines are... Uh, a young girl who's brought in by her mother who has a cold. Um, We later learn that she has AIDS. She's recently been adopted from Russia, and the mother who brings her in uh, has abandoned her. Uh, And Carol and Doug are primarily caring for this child in this case and are dealing with um, their caregiving needs and their own personal feelings about the situation. Uh, Meanwhile, our... Our local uh, cop friend has hit a dog, and he comes running in terrified and and brings this dog straight into the trauma bay, and the team does everything they can to uh, 
to save it and they are able to. And so we end up with this de facto therapy chaplain dog right alongside this young girl. Um, and that is a heartwarming element to an otherwise um, kind of heartbreaking storyline. Uh, we also see some, some teenagers on acid uh, come in. They have eaten some um, chocolate bonbons that have been laced with mind-altering substances. And so uh, we see a bit of that in handling that. Um, one of the medical residents accidentally picks some up and eats some herself. Just really terrifying thought that your healthcare provider might be sort of accidentally chemically altered. Um, and we still see some uh, some themes that carry on throughout uh, previous episodes, such as Benton um, learning how to negotiate an ailing mother and a family who's trying to care for her and balancing that with his work. And he is caring for an elderly patient who comes in and it kind of uh, opens his eyes a little bit more to his mother's reality and his mother's needs. So... Um, it is a good and hard episode. Yeah, good and hard. That says it. Yeah. Oh, and I forgot what's his face. Uh, Green is, is perennially locked in conflict with uh, lawyer wife as well. So oh, yeah. um, whose job takes precedent and whose, whose aspirations for their career um, wins the day is still a, a pervading issue for them. Yeah, it feels like every episode that's they're constantly having that same fight. It's not great. Yeah, spoiler alert, we know what's going to happen. Yeah. This marriage is not long for this world. No. <laughs> My husband was um, sitting on the couch. I had to watch like 10 more minutes of the episode after he got home, and they were just having a big argument, and he was like, well, that's a healthy marriage. <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah, talk about like the the Gottman's for Horseman of the Apocalypse for marriages. Like you see all of them. Mm. <laughs> like, oh, this will not survive. No, no. It's kind of hard to imagine them ever being happy together. I mean, I'm I'm guessing they were at one point, or they wouldn't be married. But it's just right. so hard to imagine watching them go through this. Absolutely. So anything you want to particularly focus on first? Um, Tatiana was, you know, like, just melts your heart. There's this beautiful, sweet little Russian orphan who 10 days ago was adopted out of Russia. And then this woman has just left her in the ER. She speaks no English. And once again, there is no interpreter <laughs> constant. I just want to beat my head against the wall. Why is there no interpreter in this hospital? Um, right. And all, all she has is Carol, who speaks like toddler levels of Russian because her mother is Russian. But it's still completely inadequate for what this girl needs. Absolutely. Not to mention, you know, a pediatric chaplain and child life and yes, social child worker. Life. I was definitely thinking of them, too. Yeah. But like... So I, I actually found myself wondering, Stacey, you don't happen to know anything about the history of uh, hospital systems mandating uh, this, this um, ability to provide uh, language services. Do you know anything about when that became something we actually attended to? 
No, I do not know um, historically when exactly that happened. I do know because I'm watching ER for fun besides for this show, and I'm further along in my for fun watching. And around season five is when it starts being something that is mentioned that, oh, we need to get an interpreter in here. And and that's something they do actually think about finally. Um, Mm -hmm, So that's mm -hmm. around, what, 1999, 2000, somewhere around in there on the show when it happens. Oh, my goodness. Well, so for what it's worth, I know the hospital systems that I have worked in, um, in all of the training, they're very clear that as soon as someone presents who does not speak, you know, English, who, who maybe needs ASL or any, any kind of foreign language, um, promptly you are to reach out to language services. And sometimes there are staff on uh, campus and sometimes you need to use a language line like the blue phone in my hospital system. And then for ASL folks, if we can't get um, uh, someone who contracts with us physically in-house, Uh, We have to use like a teleconference thing where someone can sign for us so that we're able to talk to the patient. Now, that being said, I can tell you that this is not always the first thing that people do. Sometimes people uh, like Carol rely on whatever Spanish or French they happen to know. Um, And while I understand um, the reflex to to communicate with someone as soon as you can or to at least establish some basic, like, hey, we're going to try and give you uh, an interpreter here soon, um, to continue doing that is, is problematic in a number of ways, including the fact that um, there, are, there are words in, uh, in the healthcare field um, that aren't always used in, you know, conversational French, for example. Right. And so um, hospital trained, healthcare trained uh, translators, interpreters have gone through these classes who know the medical jargon, who can help someone understand what's being said to them, what's being done to them in ways that people who just happen to know some of the language can't. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I know in our hospital, we have in-house Spanish interpreters pretty much all the time because that's the most common request that we get. Um, And ASL, at least during the daytime hours, we have a person there. And then the rest of the time, like you said, it's sort of a FaceTime video conference sort of thing that's always available. Um, And we use the language line as well. Although there are sometimes difficulties with that. It doesn't always work like it's supposed to. Um, And one of those times... um, I, listeners, I lived in France for a few years, and so at that time, I was fluent in French. Um, I've not Mm -hmm. been to France in over 10 years now, so I wouldn't say I'm perfectly fluent anymore. Unfortunately, it's a little rusty, but so one night, there happened to be a a French patient in the hospital. Um, Charleston is a big tourist area, and there was somebody here on vacation um, Mm -hmm. who ended up in the hospital, and the patient and spouse did not speak any English. Um, so one of the nurses remembered that I spoke French and they couldn't get the language line working. So she called me. And just like you said, Carrie, I mean, my conversational French was still pretty good, but I never learned medical French. So, of course, I wasn't <laughs> able to communicate everything that the doctor was looking at me and telling me to say. So I was just doing the best I can with like 
um, his heart is working too hard, you know, like that was the closest oh I could come. It was not at all what they, it wasn't adequate whatsoever. So, um, I did the best I could until language line was up and running, but, um, yeah, it was, it was touch and go there. I was, and then I just stayed and chatted with the spouse, you know, while the doctors were working and that was fine, but, um, I'm not a medical yeah. interpreter that takes really specialized training and vocabulary. Well, and see, and I think this illustrates another very important point about um, tending to the needs of people who are in the hospital and being sensitive to the entirety of their needs, their holistic um, self, because if if you just, at least you have the sensitivity to be aware of um, the, the fears that patients experience and families experience because of your work there um, among the many other confluence of experiences that people are having. However, if you have a family member who's interpreting or, you know, someone who is kind of less dialed into the overall nature of the hospital experience, um, they might not be uh, sensitive to the fact that uh, choosing words to try to name what's going on with someone's heart, like your heart is working too hard, could... um, not maliciously, but unintentionally scare someone half to death. Like, oh, your heart, it is about to explode. Uh, you know, like that would be alarming um, and not necessarily exactly what you want to convey, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and also when you have family member interpreting, sometimes the the family member wants to protect the patient and maybe will yes. soften um, or even change what the doctor is saying because they don't want to or hide their mother. Yeah. So there, um, that's which, just a, a big breakdown in communication too. And then we're into ethics issues. Yeah, totally. <laughs> right. Did I ever tell you about being in Italy and having to go to the ER there? No. So I fell on my side on my ribs in such a way and it it hurt so bad I thought oh my gosh I've broken a a rib and I was out in the middle of um, do you remember the book under the Tuscan sun oh yeah yeah so yeah we were like out in the middle of nowhere Tuscany very rural part of Mm -hmm. of Italy and I think even asking how to get myself to the ER was like oh, you go to the post office, and I'm like, I must be getting that wrong. Like, clearly, I am not hearing these words the way they're they're saying them to me. But no, like, sure enough, like, the local ER is also, like, the post office, and I don't even know what all else, like, the municipality for everything was in this one building, and people were still smoking inside, (laughs) and... Um, you know, I only had like one semester of Italian under my belt and <laughs> they're not like really inundated with American tourists, mm-hmm. um, in this place where we were. So, uh, the language barrier there even was, you know, the guy had the wand, um, to, you know, do the ultrasound and kind of check my internal organs and make sure everything was okay. And he goes, Hmm. And I'm like, uh, hmm, what does this mean, you know? And I'm young, young, like 20, 21. Um, so I've not had a whole lot of experience with, like, OBGYNs at this point in my life. And he goes, hmm, uh, how do you say uh, your uterus is backwards? <laughs> and I was like, what? 
oh my god what does that mean what does that mean like and then all of a sudden I'm also like thrown into existential crisis right because I'm like what is it nobody's ever told me my uterus is backwards what are the implications of that like will I ever be able to grow up and have a family one day what is it I like later learned what he was trying to tell me was I have a tilted uterus which is also like not the end of the world for someone who hopes to go on and grow a family right but as a young dumb kid who doesn't speak this language and this is getting like half-ass interpreted I was like oh my god what does that mean oh wow so adventures in ERs all around the world yeah but I think every okay. every American needs to have an experience like that to understand that when, what how it is to not speak the language, you know, when you're in a situation like that. Yes. Um, I just, and how alarming and isolating and scary, and how much more so for this. Uh, how old is she, Tatiana? Do you know? I don't think we ever hear exactly, but I'm guessing like I don't know, like eight maybe. Um, That's what I was like. I was thinking somewhere in the six to eight range. Yeah, like really young. So even less power, even less agency um, sitting there. So how scary must that be? All of these doctors talking to you and probing you, and you don't understand a single thing. Yeah. Yeah, and then for a brand new mom to just up and vanish in the wind. Yeah, the one person that she knew in this country just disappears. Mm-hmm. And I know we will cross over. Um, her storyline will will take us over into the next episode too. Mm-hmm. But her story is really helpful in terms of illustrating um, even current day uh, children's healthcare issues such as hospice. Like we're a culture who doesn't really want to offer children hospice because we're not ready to believe that children die, children die. And, and they don't always have um, illness or disease that we can fix. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And her adoptive mother says that she was just diagnosed with AIDS. Like after she adopted her, she found this out. And I'm wondering if Tatiana has even been told that she's sick, you know? Right. <laughs> and how wherever she was Stacey. diagnosed, have an interpreter. It doesn't kind of doesn't seem like it. Probably not. It's because it, it was somewhere else in the US. Yeah. Wasn't it? Yeah. So Stacey, how many times have you worked a case where you know that the family is not telling their child the whole truth? Oh yeah. So many. <sighs> yes, we see that. I mean, going back to, you know my um, soapbox of advocacy, children's advocacy and ethics. Um, These are situations that, I don't know, probably like trigger me more than others is when, you know, and I understand that the family is trying to do right by their child and love them and protect them and still um, to keep information about their health care from them, which again, we don't know that this is necessarily the case, for Tatiana in terms of like intentionally withholding as much as it's probably just de facto I don't know how to talk to this brand new Russian kid that's now in my care um nonetheless uh your children deserve to know what's going on yeah definitely um and chaplains can sometimes help with that and child life is really good at helping with that too um where child life is available so they're pretty much always available in our hospital and really helpful with 
explaining things to kids and in an age appropriate way. Yes. And the chaplains can help with the parents' existential angst, right? Right. Definitely. Um, and yes, I'm so glad that I hate that the dog got hit by the police officer, but it ended up being yeah. a good thing that um, Tatiana and this dog had each other, that they were able to save the dog after Carter did mouth to mouth on it, and, um, <laughs> which he was mouth not happy snap. about at all. <laughs> um, and the Mark and Susan wanted to intubate it. Poor dog had a, um, what did they say, a collapsed lung, but they, they ended up being able to save him. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, therapy dogs can be super helpful, especially for kids. Um, mm-hmm. We have, in our hospital, I think we have like 60 therapy dogs now, people who volunteer and bring their dogs in on different days. And um, people can request to see them. Um, and they, and other times they just kind of walk around and peek into rooms and see who wants them to come in. Um my my dog Hurley was a therapy dog for a little while. He's retired now because he's older, but um but for a while we did that and we um went to a different hospital than the one I work at and would be in the pediatric surgery area and help um sort of calm kids before they went in for surgery and that was really really sweet and fun. Oh, and as chaplain I get to do a blessing of the therapy dogs. Um get to help with that every year and we do a blessing for all of them and it's a whole big ceremony and there's people who give speeches about how much the therapy dog program has meant to them former patients and things but then one of the other chaplains and I go around and place our hand on the dog's head one at a time and say a blessing over it it's really sweet I'm sorry, the, our connection was breaking up on my end, and so I didn't get to hear everything that you said. Ah. Uh, but I I remember when you trained Hurley. Yeah. <laughs> we are really lucky up here. We have um, the canine fetch unit. So we have a lot of folks who will volunteer and bring their therapy dog uh, on campus to the local uh, county hospital. Um, but we also have several staff dogs who um, who stay permanently over in um, Children's Hospital and come and work over where where I do, especially Valentine's Dinner. So you can follow them on Instagram, the K9 Fetch oh. Unit. They um, are so fun, uh, and they really are um, staff care and staff support mm-hmm. in addition to uh, a big help for the patients. Yeah, no doubt. I always love seeing our therapy dogs, too. It makes my day. So I'm glad that whoever had it had the the wisdom to put this dog that they decided to name Bill um, on a gurney right beside Tatiana. Yeah. Someone actually did something good. (laughs) Right. (laughs) For once. Oh, the thing they did that was not so good is where they put Bill and Tatiana was right next to the trauma bay, and there was an open window between them so that Tatiana is able to see when this teenager is brought in who was hit by a train and is, um, I think that was the one it was, or maybe Mm -hmm. it was the other one who had the meat hook in his chest. I can't remember, but either way. It was meat hook. Yeah, yeah, the the kid with the meat hook in the chest, and it was this really horrible, bloody trauma. The patient ended up dying, and she's watching this whole thing and screaming and crying before Carol finally looks up and realizes that she's watching all of this. 
Yeah, so the blinds are open and she's further traumatized by not only seeing, it, it's traumatic to watch the interventions that the trauma teen has to offer mm-hmm. um, someone who is is in such grave distress, um, much less the, the other guy who's like screaming from trauma bay two or whatever over to um, trauma bay one, trying to find out what's going on. He's calling his name. He's calling and hollering at the doctors who are working on him, trying to find out how he's doing. Um, so that, that ups the ante for any onlookers as well as just the way he's presenting. Like you said, covered in blood and with a meat hook sticking out of him. Like this child is watching an actual horror film unfold in front of her. Right. Yeah, and that situation was just horrible all the way around too. It was a a father and son who got into an argument, I guess, when they were working in a meatpacking plant. And the the father says that his son, quote, disrespected his mother. And um, and so they then they got into a fight and were holding meat hooks. So the father comes in with a meat hook through his arm, and then he put one in his son's chest and ended up, they, they couldn't save the kid. I mean, it probably went into his heart, I'm guessing, and there was just not anything they could do. Yeah. Um, so he's going to mm-hmm. have some major issues to work through that he killed his son accidentally. Yeah. Oh, my God. And then, was it this episode or was it the next one with the, it was this next one with the kid with the gun, right? Yeah, that was the following one. Yeah. Okay. These oh. were both really hard this episodes. A, they were, and all the kids, too. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That was that was terrible. Now, this one also had, um, so we have Tatiana, who's been abandoned. She's got AIDS, and she has witnessed um, even more trauma while in the ER. Mm-hmm. Then we have the elderly lady, don't we, who's looking for the starch. She wants yes. to iron. Mm-hmm. And that was really touching and a little redeeming moment for Benton. Yeah, Mrs. Hayden is her name, and um, she just has a cut on her arm that Peter is is treating and stitching up, but she keeps asking. She obviously thinks that she's on a military base where she must have lived with her husband when she was younger, and she talks about how important it is to, to starch the uniform when she's ironing it, and that some of the wives don't take the time, but she wants to make sure her husband looks proper. And um, and then at the end, when Peter finds her, she asks if he wants her to starch his uniform too, and and he just thinks that's so sweet, and so he he tells her yes, and she's standing at like a little table, and she has a box of Kleenex, using it as an iron on a on a sheet or a towel that's there. Um, and, and like you said, it mm-hmm. sort of gives him a window, I think, into what is going on with his mother, who also has some dementia. Yeah. But it is Valentine's Day, and Peter has gotten roses and candy for his mom and left them in the lounge. And um, Doug is sort of badgering him about, who are these for? Because he sees that it's a, it, like he leaves a note like, property of Benton, do not touch, or something on them. And so... You know, Doug wants to know what lady he's buying flowers for, and he finally, just to shut Doug up, tells him they're for his mom. But he um he's working so so long at the hospital as usual that by the time he gets home to his mother, she's asleep in a chair, and he just leaves the flowers and the candy on her lap. I think, but um, and when he mm-hmm. gets there, the the water in the sink is running and the refrigerator is open. Um, she's she's not doing well on her own. 
Yeah. I was even seeing that. I was a little nervous that they were foreshadowing for us that he was going to find her unresponsive. Um, fortunately, that is not the case. But, um, yeah, clearly she doesn't need to be left alone too often. Yeah. Um, let's see what else was going on. Oh, so like we said, it was Valentine's Day, and Dr. Kaysen is being discharged after his heart attack and um, approaches Susan with flowers and first offers to be her mentor and then says he wants to take her out on a date and like boundaries 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 <laughs> yeah transference much yeah um yeah, they butted he, I mean, heads I think for he so actually long even says go ahead i'm sorry they butted heads for so long and then you know he she basically ended up saving his life and now he is in love with her he thinks but um, after she refuses him or makes up an excuse, she says that she has plans with Mark and so she can't go out with him. And then after he walks away and Mark is kind of ribbing her about it and she says, well, he's married. <laughs> well, it, it, doesn't he even say something about like lying on the table and looking up at this like gorgeous angelic resident who saves yes. his life? Like, yeah. It's totally inappropriate. Totally. I mean, and you would think that as a doctor, he would know about that and <laughs> recognize it for what it's worth. He has zero self-awareness. Nope. None whatsoever. But, you know, those flowers were really pretty. They were. I mean, I'm not, like, not excusing it. I'm just saying I wouldn't mind receiving a gorgeous bouquet like that. Yeah, I would totally just, keep the flowers. You know, just to have. <laughs> <laughs> so, since... Um... Then, okay... Go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, so because she made that excuse about having plans with Mark, and then she tells him that, so they do end up, I guess Jennifer's out of town, I'm guessing. I don't remember um, hearing, but mm -hmm. so she and Mark go ice skating together at the end in the freezing cold in Chicago outside, and they're terrible ice skaters, by the way. It was really funny. They are. And it's, again, a reminder, it's Valentine's Day, and um, she has, Jennifer has left town. He, earlier in the episode, references having, like, a, a stiff neck because he slept on the couch the night before. Oh, that's right. And now she has traveled back to Milwaukee or wherever it is on Valentine's mm -hmm. Day, and he's ice skating with Susan the evening of Valentine's Day. So I think, you know, we're getting more and more hints about the health and wellness of that union yeah that's not good no um oh and another sort of little valentine's day storyline so um jake the little the boy that doug has been playing basketball with a few times comes into the er complaining of stomach pain um but it turns out to be a ruse just to get his mom and doug together on valentine's day mm -hmm. and his mom figures it out pretty quickly Oh, yeah, she nails it. Like, And then, of course, Carol comes up uh, a few minutes later and corroborates what Mom's saying. Yeah, he's faking it. Yeah. <laughs> but I just thought that was pretty cute. What is it? She says he wants her to be with either a handyman or a doctor. <laughs> yeah. Somebody who can take care of her in some way, I guess. So is that pretty much everything for that episode? Oh, no. Can we talk about 
Can we circle back to Tatiana's mom mm-hmm. and talk about trauma-informed care briefly? Yeah. So it's really easy to hate this mom. And Carol right? was super judgy with her. Oh, yeah. And, I, you know, I honestly I can't really blame Carol because there's a big part of me that's right there with Carol. Like, yeah. are you kidding me? You just adopted this kid and now you're abandoning her um, and you don't deserve to ever have her, you know, put back into your care. And, uh, oh, yeah, like a lot of anger. Um, I mean, an orphan with AIDS. Um, I mean, can you think of of someone who who needs a caregiver more um you know who needs love and a home and 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 that sort of nurturing presence so it's really easy to be angry at mom hate her and totally felt some of those feels and um (laughs) when we employ a trauma-informed lens we shift from what is wrong with you what happened to you and fortunately um the writers gave us a little peek into that window and they give it to carol too now ultimately i don't know that we can say it really moves carol much on that line (laughs) Um, i don't think it really softens her heart but we the audience learn that this woman is dealing with a lot of grief over the loss of her uh, husband who was, was it a year or two or three ago I think too. Um, it was relatively recent in yeah. terms of like grief timelines mm-hmm. and she hasn't processed it. She hasn't dealt with it. It's no. completely um, untended grief work that gets triggered when she learns that this child has a terminal diagnosis, um, which it's not still a terminal diagnosis nowadays, is it? Right. There's AIDS. a lot, there's a lot of AIDS storylines in the early seasons of ER because I mean, at that time, it was a death sentence, you know, it's, it wasn't a treatable illness like it is now, and it's still not great, but there is medicine. It's very expensive medicine, but it can, it's, it's survivable. Right, right. Um, and this was the early 90s, right? Um, so mid-90s, yeah, we're in 95 now. Mid-90s. So, so, you know, it is a death sentence to this mother's ears, to this character's ears, and because she has not um, dealt with or processed her grief around her deceased husband at all. Um, there's this part in her that sort of intuitively knows that she cannot bear witness uh, to another long, slow, torturous demise and, and death. She cannot watch um, sickness slowly steal away another beloved one in her life. And, you know, that's, that's real. That's, a real experience for people um she's not just a caricature um (laughs) she's really representative of of a lot of different kinds of of loved ones that we see come through the er who have not dealt with past griefs who are being triggered by now um crises and new diagnoses and um are responding to it in all kinds of different ways sometimes really unfortunate ways ways that cause more hurt. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I really wondered if 
adopting a child wasn't a way for her to try to avoid her grief, that she wanted to do something happy, you know, and just bring this cute little kid into her life and have this source of joy. And then she wouldn't have to think about the fact that her husband was dead. Right. Right. This just kind of pretend it didn't happen. Yeah. yeah. Just get a baby. Mm-hmm. Sure. That'll fix things. Yeah. And then it turned out to be I the do have to opposite say, of that. Right. Um, almost some sort of like terrible, like Shakespearean fulfillment of the thing you're avoiding. Mm-hmm. Um, I happen to have um, some church family who um, 10, 15 years ago were adopting uh, or attempting to adopt and they had gone through some fertility struggles and they had shifted over into um, into trying to adopt and they actually traveled to Russia. They had this relationship set up with a, um, an adoption agency over there and a contact person and they were going to meet the child that was intended for them. And sure enough, Stacy, they get over there and discover that this child has um, a terminal illness and a slew of medical needs that were not disclosed to them. Wow. Um, so that's, I mean, that's also a real experience for some people. Um, tragic. Yeah. I mean, anytime you have a child, however you have it, whether through birth or adoption, you you never really know what you're getting. <laughs> right. Well, and honestly, yeah, you, like, you don't even even through birth. It's still like this like genetic dice roll. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. I liked um, I liked Carol's conversation with her fiance about uh when she's like projecting his um, family's church oh, as a yeah. possibility for yeah, that was in the next oh, episode. where they'll yeah. have the wedding. Oh, was it? Uh-huh. Oh, okay. So I'm, I'm blending it again, but um, yeah, gosh, like, wouldn't it be great if people who were healthcare experts could adopt the children with these special kinds of healthcare needs? Right. That'd be great. Let's see, anything else from this episode? I feel like we covered most of it. Yeah, I think that's it. Except I'll just say it was very alarming that poor Deb Chin eats these LSD chocolates unknowingly and then is walking around for like, it seems like half the day, just high as a kite and nobody realizes I mean, they're definitely, like, dialed into the fact that she's a little off, and they keep asking her about that, but no one seems to have enough awareness around the fact that she is out of it. Like, she's freaking staring at the paint on the wall. Yeah, Carter finds her literally staring at nothing on the wall and still doesn't think, wow, that's that's weird. Maybe we should do something. (laughs) Let me just give you a quick one over make sure you're okay. (laughs) Yeah. And so many things that Grey's Anatomy does, ER did first, and this is one of them. Just on a recent episode of Grey's Anatomy, I think it was pot brownies that a lot of the staff ate some pot brownies on accident. It's the same kind of thing. But no, the good news there is they figured it out and removed them from the floor. That's true. sobered up. Yeah, they're a little more responsible and um, aware of that at Grey Sloan Memorial, thankfully. 
So we have Deb actually trying to set Wendy's hand yes. while she's on acid. God help us. I know. Poor Wendy. So did you have any um, favorite moments from the episode? Only because I'm a weirdo. Um, my favorite moment was when Tatiana's adoptive mom told us like, the backstory of what was going on with her. Um, and that sort of untended, unprocessed grief. Yeah, that was that was really good. Like, it doesn't, I, I want to be clear, it doesn't excuse the behavior, um, but it does help to explain it yeah. um, and understand it a little bit better. So um, when we learn more about someone's story, it, it turns um, not just characters, but real-life human beings that we work with and encounter, turns them into um, more real people. I mean, um, their humanity connects with our humanity the more we hear their stories mm -hmm. yeah and speaking of connection and humanity i think my favorite moment was when um when peter comes in and finds mrs hayden pretending to iron and um and has that little interaction with her and um and doesn't try to to convince her that she's not on the military base and you know this is yes. make her realize what's really happening he just he just says yeah it would be great if you could iron my uniform too you know um because we we are taught that that's what you do with patients with dementia if, unless it's absolutely yeah. necessary you don't have to you know try to try to convince them that what they where they think they are and what they think is happening is not real and um that it's perfectly okay to to live with them in that moment where, wherever they are, whatever they're doing. Yeah. Because it's it can like, be really um, scary and agitating and um, disorienting for them, for, for people to just keep telling them over and over again, no, you're in a hospital, you know, no, you're in a nursing home. And um, that's alarming for them and exhausting for the caregivers. Mm -hmm. And largely unnecessary, right? Right. Yeah. So why scare them? It's also like the first rule of pastoral care, right? Meet them where they are. Mm -hmm. like, okay, so we are 40 years ago and we are ironing uniforms. Got it. Yep, just go with it. Mm-hmm. Okay, um, listeners, we are going to take a short break and we'll be back to discuss the next episode of ER. And we're back. The next episode is called The Birthday Party. Um, I'm going to do my best to give us a brief recap. So we start with Doug waking up in a woman's bedroom, and he calls her by the wrong name accidentally, but she doesn't mind because she doesn't remember his name either. <laughs> he leaves and goes into work a few hours early where he finds Carol, who has never left after her shift ended because she wants to stay with Tatiana. 
So this must be the next day after the last episode that we saw. Um, Doug tells her that he'll sit with Tatiana for a while so she can take a nap. Very sweet. Peter fell asleep on his sister's couch and wakes up to her three kids getting ready for school, has breakfast with them. Jackie reminds him that it's their mother's birthday and he's supposed to be at her party tonight. He forgot and says he'll have to make arrangements at work to leave early, but he has trouble finding someone to take his shift. Carter has a psychiatric patient who's doused himself in gasoline, standing in the hallway with a cigarette lighter, threatening to set himself on fire. While Carter's trying to negotiate with him, everyone else stands around frozen, but Benton quickly gets a fire extinguisher, sneaks up behind him, and hoses him down with foam. Doug has a little boy named Gus who stuck his head inside the mouth of a stuffed tiger on his dad's wall, and now he's stuck in the teeth. His dad says he's seen the Lion King too many times, and when D Doug tells the dad that they'll have to saw into the tiger head, he's very upset because his great-grandfather shot it with Teddy Roosevelt. Good grief. Um, oh. Renee, a um, patient that has been seen many times in the ER apparently, comes in with a drug overdose um, again. Her father has tried everything to help her, he says, even inpatient treatment center where she just attempted suicide, and he is at the end of his rope. A social worker comes to take Tatiana to Sunshine House, a group home for kids with HIV and AIDS, and tells Carol that her chances of adoption are basically zero. Um, Carol's heartbroken. Benton has a fisherman who cut himself with a boning knife and is now missing half a finger, it's lost somewhere in a giant tub of fish on ice, and he assigns Carter and Chin to find it. Um, oh. Deb Chin finally does. A little boy comes in with a gunshot wound to the back. Benton suspects spinal cord injury. Another child walks into the trauma bay covered in blood, sees the kid on the bed, and mumbles, I killed him. I killed my brother. Doug says the boy's in shock. Mr. Thornburg, an alter older man with altered mental status, is brought in by a woman who says um, she's a friend of his and he has lung cancer. They went to church together and she moved in with him to help take care of him. Carter eavesdrops on Benton's phone call and misunderstands, thinking it's Benton's birthday, not his mother. So Carter's worried about his chances for the ER fellowship and decides that throwing Benton a birthday party would help. <laughs> um, which is a bad idea. So, um, let's see. Oh, the little boy who shot his brother, Kyle, is crying, and his father, who's a cop, keeps yelling at him and telling him to stop crying. It's just a horrible situation all the way around. Um, Renee's boyfriend comes in and makes everything worse. Um, boyfriend and father are getting into arguments in the ER. Mark is getting exasperated. The, um, Renee insists that she isn't suicidal and just wants to go home with her boyfriend. Her father exasperatedly signs her out, and she leaves. Dr. Hicks chides Benton for trying to swap shifts and tells him he may want to consider a hiatus in his residency if he has family problems. He tells her that won't be necessary and ends up missing his mother's birthday party. Um, Lydia comes in to tell him that there are her twin sisters with abdominal seizures and he needs to come right away. These turn out to be belly dancers that Carter hired as a birthday surprise. Shockingly, Benton doesn't look that angry. Um, Doug has a toddler girl who fell 15 feet off a balcony brought in by her father, and he sadly remarks, it's a tough day to be a kid. Mm. Tag shows Carol his family church, a massive cathedral. He wants to have the wedding there. She hates the idea. She also tells him that she wants to adopt Tatiana, and he is completely opposed to that idea. Um, Benton finally just gets frustrated and tells Carter it's not his birthday, but everybody else around them now thinks it is. Um, let's see. 
Oh, there's Billy, a little boy who has co constant colds and is falling asleep in class. Doug um, says he's anemic and malnourished, and he really shames the mother for not feeding him better. She tells him she's on food stamps and has four kids at home. Um, the little girl who fell off a balcony looks like she'll be okay, but when they roll her over to check her back, they find a bruise shaped like a perfect boot print on her back, and Doug sees it and loses his damn mind. He storms out to the waiting room, finds her father, checks to see that the boot matches, and then clocks the guy. Um, Doug will have to go before the resident review committee, Mark says. A white supremacist with a knife in his chest comes in, and Benton has to work to save him. The other staff comment on his racist tattoos. Peter tells them to just do their job. The EMS says the guy was beating a black kid with a crowbar until someone jumped in and stabbed him in the chest. Um, Peter does heart surgery on him and then, like I said, misses his mother's birthday dinner. Um, Mark gets home late, and it's also Rachel's birthday, his daughter. Um, he's late for her party. There are kids running around everywhere. But Jennifer says it's fine because her colleague Craig was there to help. Mark brings a gift for Rachel from Susan Lewis, and Jen gets mad about that. She tells him she's decided to take the clerk job and will be in Milwaukee for another year. Um, everyone from night shift is uh, night shift comes on, and everyone from day shift is telling them how they didn't lose a patient all day. Um, that sounds like the kind of thing you don't want to say aloud for fear of jinxing it in the ER. But uh, um, Renee comes back in with another overdose. Um, Susan starts to innovate and tells her she is not going to die tonight because they haven't lost anyone all day. But the episode ends there, and we don't get to see whether or not she lives. No, yeah, you definitely don't want to say that. Like, I, I've never been superstitious in my life until I started working in the ER. Right. And now it doesn't even matter what context I'm in. If someone uses the Q word, uh -huh. like I have, I have a physical reflex. Like, no, yeah, don't me too. Yeah, if somebody says, it sure is quiet, or, oh, it's been a slow night. I'm like, what is wrong with you? Why did you say that? No. <laughs> so, um, gosh, so much stuff here in this one. Yeah. So much stuff. Can I, can I just start with, like, um, the most inflammatory, controversial <laughs> topic? Jump right in. So, at the very end of the episode, we start at the end, um, when Peter is standing in his house after the party's over, he says, I missed my mother's birthday party because I was saving the life of, uh, of a man with the words die nigger tattooed on his arm. Yeah. Um, and for those of you uh, listeners who are just jumping in and don't know about all of our characters, um, Dr. Benton is African-American. So that um, that was striking, and we know that this is true for people in the healthcare industry frequently, and this is one of the reasons I have zero patience for the I can't sell you a wedding cake because I don't agree with LGBTQ marriages kind of uh, argument, like, mm -hmm. um, because, you know, like, you don't, you don't have to affirm every single thing about everybody's life um, to do your job. Now, granted, I, I do think saving someone's life is more important than baking a cake. Um, right. I'm just throw that right out there. <laughs> um, 
but you know, you, you save the person's life because that's your job and it's the moral thing to do. And, um, you know, you bake someone a damn cake because that's your job and that's why you opened up a business. Um, and, uh, and that is the, that's a reality that, uh, hospital staff deal with on the regular, mm-hmm. right? That, um, you, you don't always know. People don't always literally have it written on their arm what their, their feelings are and what their beliefs are. Um, but, you know, uh, minority cultures are still having to treat white supremacists and, um, you know, women are having to treat misogynists mm-hmm. and, um, and, and LGBT folks are having to treat bigots. It's... Um, it's the reality that we see. Yeah, and even when they don't have it tattooed on their body, the ones who are awake sure do shout their feelings sometimes. I mean, <sighs> I've had friends who are doctors or nurses in the ER who have had every kind of racial slur and homophobic slur and been called fat bitch by patients, and you know, and they still treat them and still save their lives because that's what we do. That's the job. Yeah, yeah. Um, it reminds me of that that exchange in West Wing um, when President Bartlett and his doctor wife are talking about um, like what the right thing to do is in this one situation, and they reference um, uh, the doctor, Doctor is it Samuel Mudd, who set Booth leg after he assassinated Lincoln, and and she's like, no, like there's a Hippocratic oath, you set the damn leg. Yeah. Yeah. So Benton did the right thing, okay. but um, he kind of, he hated that he missed his mom's birthday party because of it. But. Well, you know, from the moment he made that promise to his sister, we knew he wasn't oh, yeah. going to keep it. Yeah. Don't make promises, folks. <laughs> Don't make promises because you just never know even if you have every intention, you just never know what kind of monkey wrench life's going to throw. Well, yeah, especially if you're a medical resident in a busy hospital, don't make promises. <laughs> right? It's like, again, that's like tempting the fate. Yeah. So, I don't know about you. I have a suspicion. I'm going to go light now. Um have a suspicion that Carol's major objection to this large, gorgeous cathedral is that she'll have about two people on her side. <laughs> yeah, what do you think? Maybe so, yeah. I, I, think, I mean... I think she just doesn't want to marry Tag. I think she's just not able to admit that to herself, but she's not going to like anything <laughs> right. about wedding plans because she doesn't want to go through with it. Right. Well, and, you know, like, he apparently has this great, huge family, and her connections seem minuscule. I mean, like, we we know of, like, like, was it last season or earlier this season? We get to see her mom, so she's, like, living with her mom, or she was shortly after her suicide attempt. Right. Um, So that's, like, at least one family member, but... Kind of have the impression that the ER staff are more her big social support network. 
Yeah, I think it's pretty much just her mom and her coworkers. I mean, when she came back to work after her suicide attempt, she said how it was good to be home or something like that. And um, I think that is her family. Yeah. Yeah. But now she wants to grow her family by adopting Tatiana. Like, she's made up her mind about this. She has visited her at this group home, and poor Tatiana is in this room with a bunch of cribs and babies crying, and there's just not enough staff to really take care of these kids and pay attention to these kids the way that they need. And as far as we know, there's still not anybody there who speaks her language. Um, And she probably just doesn't really know what's going on and why she's being left in this place. Carol is just um, just heartbroken about it and has decided that she wants to adopt her, but mm-hmm. her fiance is not at all on board with that. Um, he he says something like, "What is it like? Well, how how long does she have? Are we talking weeks, months, years? I mean, we could be watching a kid die for years." I was like, oh "Really, Tag? Do you want it to happen sooner? Is that better for you?" I just I don't understand the logic there. Yeah. And then he says, does it make me a terrible person if I don't want to do this? And Carol takes a really long time to answer that. Oh, and okay, I'm sorry. P.S. They just walked out of a damn church. So I know that there are plenty of people who use churches as just like window dressing. Like it's just a really nice, pretty place to be. But if this is, as they suggest, like the family church that they've been going to for forever, like. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> Your call to discipleship as a Christian is not to um, take the easy, comfortable road. <laughs> it yeah. is to watch a child die for years if that's the thing in front of you. If that's the work before you, you do it. <laughs> yep. So, sorry. I get on my soapbox about Christians behaving like actual Christians. <laughs> That's a good soapbox. Well, P.S., I'm not any better at it, but, I mean, I should just admit that. I'm not the perfect Christian, um, but I just get real mad at, like, our incongruencies, right? (laughs) It's easy to do. It's easy to do. So I'm I mean I'm so, glad I'm glad you're here and I'm sorry that you had to watch these episodes but I'm glad you're here for all these horrible things that happen to kids because you're the expert in that area. Oh my gosh. So I I mean like I say it in jest but also a little bit for serious. I don't know what it is but there's something that feels a little bit harder about watching the TV storyline than like the real on the ground work. Mm-hmm. Um, and that might also be like a function of my privilege because um, I'm not the one who has to go in and do emergency brain surgery on a child that has been hit so hard that it that's required. Um, and I'm not the nurse who has to check their vitals um, constantly to make sure that they are still living. So um, I I say that knowing that this is probably largely my privilege, particularly in the child advocacy center setting where, um, you know, we're not seeing children who are um, 
in emergency surgery or or PICU because um, uh, a different team was seeing them over in the hospital. Um, <clears throat> but the um, the fact that they have Doug um, run out and punch that father right after he sees the boot print on the child's back, I I'm not endorsing that at all. And I think the writers are kind of giving us this, like, the hero moment that we need and want, you know, for every time anybody opens the paper, turns on the local news, and there's another story about this. Um, I think that that is part of our humanity, not the part of humanity that we want to, like, rise to, um, but it is a shared, uh, I think, part of our humanity, like, that's what we would want to do, part of us mm -hmm. at least. Um, God, that's rough to see. Yeah, when he but, punched yeah, that I, guy, it was, it was very satisfying and frankly sexy as hell. I mean, I may have watched it a couple times, um, but, but it is, it just, that's what Doug does. Sometimes he's just all id and he just does what everybody else would, <laughs> would really secretly like to do but knows they can't do. Sometimes he just gets to the point where he doesn't care. And he just does it anyway. Damn it all, you know? And that'll yeah, get him get in trouble to live over and over like over seriously. the course of the show. But yeah. No, you've never seen anything happen like this with your staff, have you? Oh no. I mean, we've all talked about how we would want to punch somebody, but um, but no, we've never done it. Or babies that we would want to steal from parents who really didn't deserve them. But but yeah, yeah. nobody's ever done anything mm. like that. We have similar conversations that play out sometimes at our case staffings with our um, community partners, where we, you know, we, we give a little bit of voice to what we wish we could do, yeah, um, or what what we really hope the outcome is for perpetrators. Um, and you know, uh, to shift gears back into um, the larger picture too. We know that that's actually uh, not the thing that that gives us ultimate satisfaction, and um, not the thing that is um, saving or protecting a kid. Um, it's like you said; it's just the id wanting to reflect. Yeah. And I think Mark especially gets really frustrated with Doug because Doug can get very self righteous um, and think that oh you my know God, that. Yeah. He is the only, like, obviously, since he's the one who punched this dad, he must have been the only one who was angry at him, you know? Like, he sort right. of has that mindset, and Mark has to be the one to tell him, we all wanted to do that, but we all also have a job to do, and in order to keep doing that job, we can't punch everyone we want to punch, you know? We have to, we right. have to stand back and then understand that there will be consequences for his actions legally, but we are not allowed to just do violence to him. We we have to keep being doctors. Right. And I mean, especially if Doug is going to continue to care for all the future pediatric cases that will need him, um, he needs to be able to retain his license. Yeah. <laughs> and his certification as a doctor. Um, you know, this is also something that we learn about in CPE. Uh, when we're training to be chaplains, we learn about how um, when someone's feelings become so big that they take up all the room or all the space in the group, 
um, how that then kind of de facto leaves less room for other feelings mm -hmm. from other people. Um, and so, you know, Mark is not only giving voice to that in terms of um, other staff are angry too, uh, but, you know, if there were uh, other family members, there aren't in this case, but if there were, you know, then that would be, um, to some extent, you know, acting on that as robbing them from the ability to feel as big in that moment as they might and would be entitled to, if that makes sense. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. So, you know, we have this toddler who has been kicked so hard by her father that a perfect imprint of his boot is on her back. And they tell us that it's two-story balcony that she went off of and fell. Um, and in the same episode, we have um, the brothers come in and there's the gunshot wound um, and we instantly hearing this one child who's saying I killed my brother I killed my brother I killed my brother and we don't know anything about what that means and Doug is kind of frantically checking out his body to make sure you know he's got blood all over him right. so he's looking for a wound and um, then we realize that it's his brother's blood that he has on him and we then later learn that this is um, these are children of a police officer Mm -hmm. um, who is kind of stunned too as he's saying over and over again, I always lock it up. I always lock up my guns. Um, I must have just forgot. I must have just forgot. Uh, which, you know, like that happened. Oh, yeah. We, we hear so often um, in the, the gun debates and the talking heads who are hired to talk on the 24-hour news channels about like, oh, take is the good guy with a gun to stop a bad guy. Mm -hmm. You know what? Like, there are a lot of really good people, well-intentioned people who have guns for whatever reason because they've inherited them or because they like, um, you know, hunting or because they like the sport of just, like, target shooting or whatever. Maybe they just really like guns. Um, who are forgetful flawed people and they forget to lock up their guns and um this this summer one of the weeks that I missed because I was at the pediatric chaplains network annual gathering and um we had a whole day about um gun reform and gun um reform advocacy because um peds chaplains are among the staff who constantly see a situation like this where it's just this tragic situation where whether it's a, a young you know toddler age child who didn't even know what they were picking up um, and didn't even intentionally pull a trigger um, to you know the older kids who have a little more sense of what they're doing but maybe don't realize um, like the lethality involved in um, what they're exploring but you know what like kids are curious oh yeah it's just, oh my gosh, is it worth it? Is it worth it? Right. I just, I don't understand it. And yeah, I've seen it. I mean, too many times. <laughs> Not as often as I see too many times. adults, young adults shoot each other. That's like the most common in the ER. But, but yeah, kids mm -hmm. 
shooting either another kid or an adult in the house accidentally because they stumbled onto a gun and they were curious. Um, it just, it happens way too much. Well, and I don't know if I've told this story in our podcast already, but, you know, even, even in situations where you have a teenager in the house, mm -hmm. um, like one of my first uh, cases is imprinted on my mind and my heart because um, it was this, you know, teenagers are kind of just reactive. Oh, yeah. Um, that's just kind of how they show up. That's part of the typical development. Um, but, you know, when there's a gun just lying on the bedside table um, in parents' room, even then, even if you've already taught your kids how to um, handle guns safely and the context is only appropriate for using them, you know, you have a, a teenager who reacts to something with big emotions in a rash way. Um, that's a that's a choice that can never be undone. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's because there was a handgun just lying there. Right. Uh, to hurt, and they end up hurting themselves or someone else. Just in that moment of all the emotion that would have passed yeah. safely if there wasn't yeah. an opportunity. Yeah. Because it was even more heartbreaking to watch the the father scolding this child who had just um, shot his brother accidentally. Well, was it accidentally or on purpose? Do we even know? We don't even know the circumstances, I don't think. Yeah, if he was, like, purposely doing it in, in a playful way, like, maybe not understanding fully the consequences, or if it was just complete accident, I just picked it up and didn't know it would do that kind of thing. He's pretty young. Yeah. Um, so I could, I would buy it either way. Um, but now he's, he's living with the consequences of that, whether he understood those on the outset or not. He's sitting there living with them. He's hearing the adults around him talk about, you know, like, we don't know if he's going to make it. We don't know, you know, he's going to have to have emergency surgery. And, and he's upset and he's crying and his dad's yelling at him for crying. And of course he's uh, crying. Talk, yeah. Talk about complicated grief and complex trauma. Oh, my gosh. I just wanted to scoop him up. In yeah, my mind. I did, too. But then also, okay, so then to sort of like pour oil on the fire, when when the dad realizes that like maybe I shouldn't be scolding my child who accidentally shot my other child right now uh, and telling him not to cry, and he sits down and he hugs him and he tries to comfort him and he actually does a little mea culpa, but then he says, it's all right. It's going to be all right. Like, don't say that. Yeah. You don't know that it's going to be all right. Um, you could say something else like, I'm here. I'm not mad or whatever. Um, although I don't know if you necessarily want to say that. That might not be true either. Um, but, you know, like, I'm here. I'm sorry. I was yelling. Um, you're with me right now. You're safe right now. Like those kinds of things, you can say that. But if you're saying like, it's going to be all right when the other kid's going into emergency surgery, like don't say that. Just don't say that. No, no. Again, don't make promises you can't keep because you don't know if that kid's going to come out of surgery alive. Nobody does. Right. And even if he does, 
even if he does, it's still not all right. Mm -hmm. Like that's what the kid is sitting there living with right now. He is living with this existential crisis of, I may have killed my brother. Um, So even if the brother survives and completely, um, this is something this child will have to live with for the rest of his life. Like crazy scary and life is never going to be the same again. Yeah. What he needs to hear is not everything's going to be all right. It's, it's okay to be scared. It's okay to be sad. You know, I'm here. Yeah. Just to know that he's loved and he's not alone and that his feelings are okay and normal. Yes. And that there's an adult who can bear them and will stay there with him no matter what, no matter how hard he cries or if he lashes out that, you know, his, his dad is not going to leave him because of the way he's acting out his feelings. Oh, Stacy, you better preach. An adult <laughs> who can bear them. I love that. Yes. Would that all children had that? Oh, yeah. And what an honor it is as a chaplain to get to be that adult sometimes in those moments for that kid. Yes. It is. It is. Because you don't, you don't often see that. Oh. There was a there was a part of the storyline, Stacy, that reminded me of um, my own like existential angst around loneliness when I would see patients discharge and leave who I know had nobody. Mm. What was that? I I can't remember. I I remember watching the episode and then recalling my own struggle with that of like, I'm okay knowing that you've got like family at home or you've got a support system through your faith community or your neighborhood group or your bunco group, or like, I don't even care what it is, but you've got people. Right. But you know, when I was, you know, when I would be assessing people and trying to establish like what, if any, you know, layers of support they have and they would articulate none, Mm everything um and then we discharge them I, I could hardly handle that that was my stuff but I hated it yeah yeah I know and as you're saying that I'm thinking yes there was something like that in this episode but I can't remember who it was it was someone who was just kind of trying to write it off like no I'll be fine I'll be fine yeah which is what we see in the ER too right I'm right. sure you've had those those clients before too who are like, you know, they're going through some of the worst experiences they've ever had in their life and they're telling you, like, now I'm good. Mm-hmm. Really? Okay. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure I believe you. <laughs> like, even if that's true right now, like, I just want to make sure you have people you're dialed into for like the next day or next week when you're like all of a sudden really not fine yeah um that's when they need your people yeah and i i did i felt for the mother of this little boy who was anemic and malnourished um (gasps) the one that doug was (laughs) shaming like i said i was really frustrated with him 
Um, but the one good thing he did with her was um, give her the names of some local food banks, and he specifically mentioned some churches um, who would help her get mm -hmm. enough food for her kids. Mm -hmm. um, because it did seem like she just didn't have the resources that she needed. Well, he didn't. He, like, picked that to the nurse, didn't he? Like, she's going to be the one to give. That's true. He said, can you get her the names? That's true. You're right. Yeah. Which, again, I'm like, you know, like, nurses have a thousand and one things to do yeah. um, <laughs> on, a, like, a normal day when it's not extra busy. So um, this is probably when you would want to call the social worker and or yeah. the chaplain. Again, like, chaplains are paid for our time like we have time to give utilize it um so we can be the ones who are like sitting with you instead of the nurses or whatnot or like helping you connect so sometimes that is our job is to help you connect with your own resources because sometimes people forget to actually rely on the church community or the faith community that they're already a part of um and there's a lot of barriers culturally to um, to our ability to ask for and receive help. Yes. Um, and she kind of articulates that. Like, he's like, you know, no, you don't have to stay at the shelter. She, she says something kind of to dismiss the idea. Like, she doesn't have that level of need. And he's like, no, you don't have to stay there. You just go there to get the food. Uh, I don't remember how she phrased it, but she balks at this. Yeah, she like, says, I can take care of my kids or something like that. You know, I can feed my kids. And meanwhile, he's like, no, you're in the middle of urban city in America and your kid's starving to death. Mm -hmm. um, like, this is something that um, people who work in, uh, like, community, nonprofits, faith communities, those kinds of things try to have these conversations about how do we, how do we offer people help and do it with dignity at the same time? Like, how can we support people in these um, these thin places that happen to a lot of us. Um, and some of us just have more layers of support than others. Mm -hmm. um, how do we do that in a way that um, it doesn't strip them of dignity? Um, and this is like, I'll tell, like, for example, I have a pet peeve of, like, seeing the church youth group handing a bag of, Christmas gifts to a family on their front porch and then like seeing that posted on Facebook or Instagram or whatnot and like oh my god where's the dignity like I'm so glad that you were able to do like the secret Santa shopping for them and help them out so kids can experience um a little joy on Christmas morning but like you don't have to post the damn family's picture on yeah. Facebook because this is not about making you look like the hero. This is just about, like, helping someone out under the wire, like, make your gifting anonymous. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, so what, I don't know. Like, what's the toxic charity fix for um, or the dignity uh, for this mom who's like, my kids need food, but I have... Um, I guess pride is a barrier. Yeah. I don't know. I know it's hard because it's such a 
our culture is so much about independence and, you know, everybody doing for themselves that we're not taught to rely on each other as a community, that there's still shame in that and in, in needing help and asking for help. Oh, my gosh, yeah. Okay, so here's another connection, actually, a, t- a two- two-way connection between my story and this story. Benton is actually told um, by um, superiors that his um, residency can be in jeopardy. He continues to try to um, keep switching shifts and and ducking out of time, right, Um, because of his mother's health care needs. Chaplaincy residencies are not nearly as competitive as doctor ones. Um, but my mom was diagnosed and ended up actually dying in the middle of my residency. Um, so the grace, I think, in our world, in our little pocket of, um, of, of the career world, of healthcare providers, is, you know, there, were, there was space and grace for me to take the time that I needed. And I wasn't penalized by that. In fact, you know, my, my superiors were looking for to help me um, still finish and still succeed in this program um, while honoring the fact that you need time to grieve. You have such a great loss like that. Um, The part that made me jump to this from the mom was remembering um, my parents' deep reticence to um, letting our Sunday school classes bring food. Um, but you know, like when when you are dealing with chronic or terminal illness, um, as the patient or as a primary caregiver, um, you're you know you're you're almost kind of in a state of trauma, <laughs> and and your needs uh, you know shift and become reprioritized, and and doing something like. Um, figuring out what to buy at the grocery store and paying attention to what you have in the house and putting it all together into a meal is like really higher order stuff because I'm trying to make sure that my loved one is still alive and stays alive. And have they taken their medicine? Um, What about the next round of medicine? Have we checked the vitals? Have we pulled fluid off her lung? Like all of these, like caregiving becomes so constant that it's really a tall order to do something like plan a meal. (laughs) <laughs> and then prepare it and serve it. That's a lot of work. Mm-hmm. Um, my parents were so averse to accepting the food from their Sunday school class members and mine and my husband. Um, but, you know, like the church wants to give and they yeah. want to help. And it's not about we can afford to feed ourselves. It's about letting people love you. And in situations like this, they don't know any other way. That's one way they do know how to love you. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, even, even, you know, as close as my own parents, I saw like this deep reticence to accept help and love and support. But you know, the actual, the root, um, French speaker, you can you can tell us about this. The root of the word charity, charity, is love. Love. Yeah. 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 One of the things that saved my life in the early days of chaplaincy and CPE um, 
was Gene Stevenson Messner's Parable of the Self-Differentiated Samaritan. Um, mm. We all know the parable of the Good Samaritan, and as good Christians, we all want to be the Good Samaritan. You know, we want to be the one who who saves the person lying on the side of the road and and helps them and puts them back on their the, the horse and takes them away and takes care of them. So mm-hmm. the the way Messner tells the story and reframes the story is that the Samaritan didn't pick the guy up and take him to the inn and then spend the rest of his life there at that inn taking care of the guy and spending all his money for the rest of his life caring for this person. He realized that he was part of a community of care, so he did what he could, and then he trusted that the rest of the community would do what they could too, that the innkeeper would keep taking care of the guy, that there were other people who would help feed him and heal him, and then he would be on his way and be able to care for himself. And that it wasn't all up to this one person because that's the mistake that I was making in my early chaplain days was that, oh God, I can't leave this family. Like I have to spend my entire shift with this one family because if I'm not helping them, nobody will help them. Mm-hmm. But I'm I'm not the only helper. <laughs> Yeah. And and that's a really unhealthy way to be. So um so it was hard for me to to stop helping, to let other people help. And then even beyond that, for me to ever accept help for myself, God forbid. But when <laughs> I was just when I was just bowled over by depression and was at at my breaking point, a friend of mine who knew how much I loved that that little parable reminded me of that and she was like you're not letting anybody else take a turn to be a Samaritan. It's not your turn right now. Let other mm. people help you in the ways that they can help you. Yes. And do you remember sharing that with me during my residency year? Yeah. And I was at my breaking point and you taught me the parable of the self-differentiated Samaritan. Yeah. That stuff is gold. That's the, the best thing I ever read in CPE for sure. Well, and you gifting it to me indeed breathed new life into this worn out chaplain resident and daughter and wife and mom. And, oh. So, yeah, there are some people in ER who could, who could use a reading of that. I think right? Doug, Doug needs to know that he's not the only one who can help these kids. Yeah. It's not all up to him. Yeah. Well, and you know, for that matter, Carol, too, because she definitely latches on to Tatiana's story. Um, yeah. And it's hard, though. It is hard to just kind of recognize that we're one piece of a larger puzzle when you can't always see all the other pieces. Yeah. Yeah. It, it like, requires some trust. Definitely. Yeah. And um, And that trust can really be easily, even if unintentionally, broken by systems who are just as fallible as people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, listeners, um, if you're not familiar with the parable of the self-differentiated Samaritan, I will put some links in the show notes to um, to help you find that somehow. I'm not sure if it's online, but if it's not, I'll at least link to where you can buy the book on Amazon because it's worth it. It is worth it. <laughs> um, Carrie, any final thoughts as we wrap up here? 
No, like the self-differentiated um, Samaritan is just like gold. Let's, I don't know. That's, you can't top that. No, that's a, that's a really good note to end on. <laughs> it is. So um, we've had some great conversations about these two um, kind of heavy episodes, really hard to get through episodes. So thank you, Carrie, for being my conversation partner. And um, listeners, thanks for being here. Um, not sure when we'll get to record episode 10, hopefully sometime soon. And when we do, um, we'll be talking about um, two more episodes of ER, one of which is one of the um, famously saddest episodes of the entire series called Love's Labor Lost. So um, just a heads up there. Sorry to know that's coming, but I'm sure we'll have some good chaplain conversation there. There's lots of fodder for it. Um, we will be back with you soon on ER Chaplains Watching ER. Please let us know your thoughts on social media. Oh, and a, a big special thank you to at um, Rev Lady Preacher on Twitter for tweeting about us and letting other people know about our show. Yeah. Um, and we've gotten a lot of new Twitter followers and Facebook followers recently, so thanks to all you guys. Hope you're enjoying the show. Please let us hear from you. And we'll be back with you real soon for episode 10. ER Chaplains Watching ER is produced at Top 5 Studios by my talented husband, Will Lawton. Music for the show is provided by our band, Rogue 2. You can hear some more of our great original songs at Rogue 2, that's T-W-O dot rocks. If you like this podcast, please subscribe and leave us a review on your favorite podcast app so other listeners can find us. Let us know your thoughts about the show on Twitter at chaplains underscore ER. Or comment on our Facebook page at Chaplains Watching ER. You can learn more about the hosts and find show notes for each episode on our website, chaplainswatching.net. Follow me on Twitter and Facebook at Stacy N. Sargent. That's S-E-R-G-E-N-T. I blog about hospital chaplaincy, step parenting, and other stuff at stacynsargent.com. Where you can also find links to get my book, being called Chaplain, How I Lost My Name and Eventually Found My Faith. Join us right here next week for more insightful conversations about ER.